Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking a bit about some of the rookies in this class. We're not exactly going to be doing a deep dive on how they've been playing so far in the one, two, three games that these rookies have been playing, but just to sort of take a look at where some of the rookies are shaking out in the early season rotations for some of these teams. So I'm here right now with Tyler Metcalf, and Tyler, how are you? Doing great, Nick. Happy to be back on, and just happy basketball's back in our lives. If you're talking about this year's rookie class, pretty much the only place to start since about a third of the way through the last college season is with Zion Williamson. He looked spectacular in preseason. There's really no other way to put it. He shot 70% from the floor. He averaged over 20 points a game. Basically, he shot nothing but layups near the rim and thunderous dunks and just like in high school, just like in college, no one in the NBA can really stop him from doing that either. But unfortunately, he tore his meniscus just before the start of the season. He's going to miss about two months of playing time. And it's just really disappointing, honestly. I don't think there's any other way to put it. Yeah, and it's a it's a complete bummer that, you know, we're not getting to see him play right now. But I guess, you know, for a franchise who just went through all the Anthony Davis fiasco and all of his injuries um i i would rather have them play it safe with him and you know take it slowly than try and rush him back in just to get him on the court um where it can make things worse but it's still a complete letdown since he was you know the biggest free agent um that that we've had maybe since lebron um he was really impressive in the preseason great rebounder he's able to show off um his passing ability a little more in transition and i was just really excited that he wasn't trying to force jump shots to try and prove to people that he could shoot when he still really can't the shooting is definitely the concern for him and other than jj reddick it's not like they have a plethora of shooters down there in new orleans but really the cautious path is the path to go with zion i mean I don't expect him to pull a Blake Griffin, Ben Simmons, and just miss the entirety of his rookie year. But ultimately, it's going to be about year three, year four, when it starts to really matter for this Pelicans team in terms of Zion's health. And you have to maximize year three plus for him rather than sort of focusing on getting him out there as quickly as possible during his rookie year to try and sell tickets. But it is really funny that more than half of their first 20 games are on national TV, which was done pretty much exclusively for a guy who is going to be playing in exactly zero of those games. The NBA cannot be thrilled about that. Um, Just really unlucky um, start to the season for, you know, the NBA office, but you know, it's, it's what they got to do and rushing him back would be a horrible decision. And, you know, some people were giving this team outside playoff shots. I never really saw that. I feel like they, as a team, have a lot more holes, mainly, their inability to shoot from outside consistently and they don't really have a whole lot of playmaking. Um, So him missing, you know, the first month or so, I don't think really hurts their playoff chances. Um, But hopefully he can come back and, and, and doesn't miss the entire season like we've seen some guys do. Well, you mentioned playmaking. So let's move on to the number two pick in the last draft, John Morant who has started both of his first two games in Memphis. On the offensive end, he's looked pretty solid, not spectacular. The passing vision is great, but that's kind of what we expected out of him. The jump shot is clearly a work in progress, but he did at least hit a couple threes early, so that was nice to see. The thing about Morant is something that is certainly familiar to me as someone who watched De'Aaron Fox his rookie year. He's just too skinny to play defense effectively at all. And unlike De'Aaron, I don't think John Morant really has that top-notch defender ceiling in him, but he could at least be a solid defender given his athleticism if he can weigh more than like 130 pounds, which is obviously not what he actually weighs, but it's kind of what it looks like he weighs when he's getting pushed around out there. Yeah, he, He's tiny out there. Um, and you could kind of see it last year at Murray State, but now, now that he's playing with grown men it's pretty evident of how how skinny he is um but it doesn't really do it it hasn't really seemed to affect his play style at all and he's still attacking the rim 
full force. Um, defensively, he's he's just going to be a negative, um, at least for the next couple years. And he he was never really a good defender in college either. So and that's not surprising. Um, but you know, we are seeing him use his athleticism some to come for like weak side blocks and help out in that regard. Um, his passing vision is incredible. Just the decision making is still a little frustrating. I mean, he's averaging, you know, we're only two games in, but he's at 4.5 assists per game, but five turnovers. So if he can tighten, tighten that aspect of his game up and just, you know, sometimes making the easy pass is the best pass. And if he can kind of rein that in, um, he, he could be really, really good. I have to admit, I'm not really all that worried about the defensive side of things. First of all, because point guard isn't the most important defensive position. It's probably more important, honestly, than, say, shooting guard defense, but it's certainly not like how important big man defense is and protecting the rim. And in terms of big man defense and protecting the rim, he's got Jaron Jackson Jr. on his team, and he's also got someone on his team that we're going to talk about a little bit later in the podcast. So as seems to kind of be the trend for the city, something tells me that the Memphis Grizzlies are going to be a pretty solid defensive team once this core rounds into form. So totally out of character for the Grizzlies to be good on that end of the floor. Yeah, when I say Morant's just not a good defender, it's, you know, it just kind of staying a fact, not, it's not, I don't think it'll be that big of a deal. Um, they have solid defenders around him. And as long as he can, you know, not get into foul trouble or be just embarrassingly bad, which I don't think he will be, um, you know, then I, it, it won't be a big deal because they, they picked him because of his playmaking and scoring ability. And if he can do that, that's all they really care about. Let's move on to RJ Barrett, the number three pick in this past draft. And I think it's interesting to talk about him immediately after talking about Morant's defense, because Unlike John Morant, R.J. Barrett looks like he's already pretty close to having an NBA-level body. He's much bigger than the average rookie that you're going to see out there. Defense isn't exactly his calling card, but he has been better on that end than I expected him to. And I think that's almost entirely because he's just a bigger dude than pretty much all the other rookies out there. In terms of the other side, his offense has been a lot more efficient than I expected with one caveat, which is that... It's early, granted, but the fact that he's somehow shooting 43% from the free throw line is a little bit troubling, especially when it comes to projecting his long-term offense. The best thing about Barrett right now is that he's a teenager with an NBA body, um, and he's really strong. He's a good athlete, and he's been able to use that to his advantage on both ends of the floor so far. Um you know, offensively, he's done a great job of just kind of bullying his way to the rim um, and showing off a, a pretty good touch around the rim like he did at Duke. I just I still have a lot of concerns with his shooting. You know, there'll there'll be games where he shoots it well, but overall, I his shooting numbers are going to leave a lot to be desired. And on top of that, when he's done a gr great job of getting to the rim, but I feel like he's still forcing forcing sh bad shots at the rim and kind of missing open kickout opportunities. And that could just be a result of him not having any other shooters on that team and being surrounded by a dozen power forwards. I will say just to clarify that really the main reason I'm worried about his six of 14 start from the free throw line is that he only shot 66 and a half percent from the line in college so really, that's more just that, you know, if he'd looked more confident from the free throw line early, I would have more confidence in his shot going forward. But it doesn't exactly seem like he's fixed that particular part of his game. And ultimately, if he can't be a solid to maybe even above average shooter from three point range, it's really going to cramp the rest of his offensive game. I'm not as worried about how his offensive game is going to look this season, just because he has to put up with the rest of the teammates that the Knicks have surrounded him with. But longer term, I think it's really going to be about whether he actually can goose those shooting numbers a bit. Because if he doesn't, he's just going to be, you know, another unspectacular player who's sort of good at getting inefficient shots off. Yeah, and that's been my biggest concern with him is his inability to 
shoot. Uh, and coming out of college, you know, we, we saw him really struggle with that and his shot selection, you know, frankly kind of just sucked. So I'm, I don't think he has an ideal team around him. So I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be too harsh or critical about it this season, but going forward in the next or, you know, even by just like the end of this year, seeing some more consistency and improvement with his, with his jump shot, um, would show a lot of where he's going um, with his development. Next up, Rui Hachimura, who has yet to hit a three-point shot this season, despite that being something that he has apparently been working on quite a bit this offseason, basically since he finished his year at Gonzaga. So I would certainly have expected to be more concerned about Rui if he'd gotten through his 97th minute and hadn't made a three-pointer. But he's been decent so far. He's been middlingly efficient on offense for a team that has basically nothing else around him in Washington. And really, I think with Rui, if he can develop that three-point shot, he can be a really solid wing contributor. But not to the same extent as I think it's true with RJ, but certainly... Rui's NBA career is going to very much live and die by his ability to start making three-point shots. Well, at at Gonzaga, he really thrived on offense when he was around the rim or kind of being able to square up in the mid-range and create out of there. And he's he's scoring pretty well, you know, just over 16 points and really rebounding it well at just under eight rebounds a game. So I, I think right now I would my my assumption is that he's kind of playing and producing a lot more than most people kind of anticipated him to. But if he really wants to be um, a, a strong offensive presence and really kind of help lead that Wizards team um, to achieve more than pretty much anyone thinks they can, you're, you're absolutely right that it, that, that three-point shot will be absolutely vital to him. And granted, the Wizards don't exactly have a lot of depth at the big man positions, but I think his rebounding has been really big early on. And the thing to point out with his rebounding is it's not just that he's been grabbing a bunch of uncontested boards. He's actually tied with Thomas Bryant in terms of offensive rebounds right now. And granted, that's kind of a bit of early luck. You know, sometimes a bunch of boards fall your way. But the fact that he's gotten eight offensive boards in three games makes me really hopeful about how he can sort of fill in on offense when he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Yeah, and that's just a testament to his IQ and ability to recognize the floor. Um, He's always done a great job of reading angles and anticipating where the ball is going to bounce to. So if if he's able to keep doing that, um, you know, it'll only help him improve his scoring numbers and help the team win. I'm sure you are very much not looking forward to talking about the next player on this list because I know just how much you loathe Kobe White and his game. So I'm just going to let you go for it. (laughs) Uh, So listeners or readers who are familiar with any of my content know that I absolutely love Kobe White and he was he wasn't my top ranked prospect out last year, but he was absolutely my favorite. And the fact that the Timberwolves passed on him just, you know, broke my heart. Um, with that said, I think he's looked really impressive in the first couple games this season. Um, he's playing with controlled pace. He's shooting it pretty well. His passing vision has been better than I initially thought it would be. Um, he's just playing a lot more controlled. I thought he was going to kind of come out a little wild like we saw in preseason, just hucking up shots and trying to force passes. But in the first couple games, he's looked awesome. And I, I, I think that he'll take over that starting point guard job sooner rather than later um, on a consistent basis and wouldn't be surprised if he's a legitimate rookie of the year candidate. I know that it was quote unquote only preseason and it's also been only a couple of games so far, but a point that you raised that I very much agree with and I think is really important is just that he's been actually looking to pass a little bit so far during his first few NBA games Whereas in the preseason, it really seemed like he was just going to be a pure scoring guard, at least early on. So his feel isn't exactly John Morant level in terms of passing vision, passing IQ, ability to read the offense, but he's been solid there. And really for him, it's more about just being a score first guard rather than being 
purely a scoring guard, you know, looking to pass sometimes, maybe not first in the lineup, but looking to pass sometimes as opposed to not looking to pass at all is going to be huge for his ability to earn playing time this year. Yeah, and on top of his passing, and a big factor in that is that he's really good at finding his way to uh, to the rim. So if the Bulls can, you know, be more consistent shooting from the outside or improve, you know, their cutting off ball, so that would really um, make make his life easier with finding those open guys, um, but also opening up more scoring opportunities for himself, um, because if the rest of the team is shooting better, defense won't be able to collapse on him as easily and he'll just have to finish around his primary defender. So overall, I, I think what he's shown in the first couple games has been really encouraging. Um, and if I was a Bulls fan, I would be ecstatic that he's on the team. Next up, PJ Washington. Probably his biggest concern coming into the NBA was whether he could shoot well enough to let the rest of his skill set play out, whether he could shoot well enough to earn enough minutes to let the rest of his skill set play out. And so, of course, he responded to that by setting the NBA record for most three-pointers in the game in a rookie debut. So really, if Washington can keep shooting it well from beyond the three-point line, he might actually be a glimmer of hope in what is not exactly going to be the most hopeful of Charlotte Hornets seasons. I feel like P.J. Washington is kind of playing like Charlotte thought Miles Bridges would. Um, he's already a much better shooter than Bridges. He's a really strong rebounder. He's a smart defender. They can switch him onto multiple positions. Um, I, ju- I just really like this kid. I mean, he doesn't do anything great, but he does a lot of things really well. And for a team that, you know, really doesn't have anything to lose this year, um, I kind of hope that they just keep feeding him minutes and opportunities because he's been the, the the most impressive thing on their team this season. I completely agree with you. I don't think there's any reason not to just let him try whatever he wants to try. And if it doesn't work out, not going to be that much of a problem for you. But if he can develop more of a secondary playmaker type of game, if he can develop his passing vision, if he could maybe even... I don't know, develop a post game, just anything, you know, get him the ball as much as you can, let him work on whatever sort of skills he can work on with the ball in his hands, because ultimately the more well-rounded he is, the better he's going to fit with whatever other pieces the Hornets can procure over the next few years of what's likely to be a pretty extended rebuild there. But let's stay in the division here and move on to the Miami Heat's Tyler Harrow. And coming into the NBA, he was a shooter and a shooter and also a shooter. And so far in the NBA, it looks like the shooting has carried over. It looks like he's a lot better with the ball in his hands than it looked like he was at Kentucky. And ultimately with Harrow, really, it's just going to be what else can he do besides shooting? Because his shooting touch alone, in addition to his ability to shoot off the dribble, which has been better than expected, I think, so far. It'll keep him in the NBA for the next decade or so. So really, I think it's about what else he develops beyond that shooting touch. Yeah, he's just a really talented kid. I mean, he's obviously everyone just goes to his shooting right away. But I mean, later, as the season progressed, um, he, he did more and more ball handling and kind of creating for himself off the dribble at Kentucky. And he's just kind of another example of a Kentucky guy that has a lot more to his game than we were really allowed to see um, at when they were at Kentucky and Carl Anthony Towns rarely shot outside the paint when he was there. Devin Booker um, scarcely ran a pick and roll and now he's doing that all the time. So Hero's ability to create for himself off the dribble um, isn't that shocking. We saw flashes of it and you know he, that that's where his kind of NBA career is going to come from is his scoring ability. Defensively, he's meh. You know, he's he's not going to wow you, but the kid works his butt off on both ends of the floor and has an, a tremendous amount of confidence in himself, which will gel just perfectly with that roster, coaching staff, and organization. So I, I think he's going to be a really good player for them um, for a while and is, is a perfect organizational fit. Speaking of offense first, let's move on to Darius Garland, who... 
somehow actually improved his draft stock in between high school and college, even though he only played four games in college. And really that's just because he has the kind of ceiling that a team needs out of their lead guard. You know, he is the kind of player who one day, maybe not the same echelon, almost certainly not the same echelon, but the same kind of idea as Steph Curry and Dame Lillard, a guy who can make a ton of shots off the dribble, basically be a threat to pull up from pretty much anywhere inside of 30 feet and be a good enough passer that he can get out of double teams if he's being pressured really hard. The thing about Garland that concerns me is just that I don't know what his development is going to look like when he's basically being forced to play in a backcourt with Colin Sexton, where the two of them really don't complement each other at all. And I just don't see any way that that backcourt is going to work the way that the Cavs want it to, because I just don't think that there's enough difference in the two of their skill sets for it to be beneficial to have either one of them play off the other, because that's just cutting into their own developmental time. I completely agree that that the pick was kind of weird because of the Sexton pairing. Um, With that said, I would choose Garland immediately and you know, kind of build around him going forward. I don't think Sexton really has the tools of a modern point guard that you can succeed with where Garland does. Um, His ball handling's really, really good. Um, He can score from anywhere on the court. He has no issues getting to the rim. He can pull up off the dribble. Um, He's a pretty solid passer. I, I just think his ceiling is just so much higher than Sexton and if I were them, I'd try and look to move off a section just to, you know, not stifle any development um, with Garland. And, you, you know, we touched on the defensive concerns with John Morant, but where, you know, it didn't seem like it'd be that big of a deal. Um, Garland's lack of defensive ability it could be the rare case of a bad point guard's defense really hurting a team. And in the Pacers game, there's like a three or four possession stretch where Malcolm Brogdon just walked past him for a layup. Um, It's, it's really, really bad right now, but the Cavs, you know, are also really bad right now. So focusing on his development um, is, is probably the best thing for them right now. I think the difference on defense between Darius Garland and John Morant is just that John Morant has extra help. I mean, if John Morant messes up on perimeter defense He's got Jared Jackson Jr. waiting by the rim. Maybe he's got Brandon Clark lurking on the weak side, waiting to recover to whoever John Morant lets blow by him. Even Jonas Valanciunas is pretty good at defending around the rim if he's just stationed around the rim. Cleveland, on the other hand, set records for how bad their defense was last year, and they didn't exactly pick up anyone who can help them on that end, especially since John Henson, as of this morning, is scheduled to miss the next two to four weeks. He was really the only interior defender that they could conceivably rely on, and now he's going to miss time. So I think the difference between Garland and John Morant is just that John Morant has help and Darius Garland does not have defensive help in any way, shape, or form. Morant's individual athleticism is also at a much higher level than Garland's, which helps him, you know, recover more, um, where Garland really isn't able to do that. And Garland's more of a blow-the-rim finisher, where, you know, we've obviously seen Morant's sky way over it. Um, So Morant's explosiveness and... um, overall athleticism helps him a little more than uh than garland's up next deandre hunter biggest question with him was just how good of a shooter was he really because he shot 48 percent last year in college on a very small sample size i don't think it would be fair to call him a 48 percent shooter since i don't think it's really fair to call pretty much anyone a 48 percent shooter but he has made 50 percent of his nba threes so far And on the defensive end, he's pretty much the only potentially positive defender in that Hawks starting lineup. So it's kind of hard to evaluate him on defense just because he's trying to cover for a lot of other people. But ultimately, it looks like he's kind of exactly what the Hawks thought he was, which is a really solid contributor, 3 and D type of player who's 
going to help out the rest of their starting lineup, but doesn't have the same kind of upside as maybe the Hawks would have had if they'd kept the 8 and 17 picks that they traded for him. When they drafted Hunter, I, I was really looking forward to how they would use him as that 3 and D um, off-ball wing. And, you know, so far, I think it's kind of been what we expected. Um, Trey Young dominates the ball when he's on the court. And all Hunter really has to do is kind of find those open spaces to move into to bail Young out when he needs an outlet. Um, And there's only so much defensively that, you know, one guy can do when the rest of the team is awful at it. He's almost like the complete inverse of... John Morant, where he's a really good defender and just the rest of his team isn't. So I I think as his, you know, career progresses, I think he'll improve and guys will catch up to just being hopefully mediocre. So he doesn't have to do everything on that end of the floor. Um, But right now I'd say um, the, the, the Hawks should be really happy with that selection. Let's move on from the players who've been getting starts for their team so far this year into some of the more important role players. And there's nowhere else I would want to start with that other than Brandon Clark, who we've sort of been referencing throughout the podcast in reference to John Morant. Clark has kind of similarly to DeAndre Hunter been pretty much exactly what I expected him to be. He's been a defensive menace. He's been a bit player at most on offense but he's been making most of his shots he's actually hit a three-pointer which I certainly was not expecting from him given that that's not something he did in college and especially before he transferred to Gonzaga he had one of the more hideous shots in college basketball but ultimately Brandon Clark is going to be third on the offensive hierarchy among the three main young guys for them in Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant, and Clark. And if he can keep being a menace on the defensive end and a complimentary player on offense, there's no reason to not continue to think that he was arguably the steal of the draft. It, it was appalling that he fell to 21 at the time. And you know now that he's actually playing in the NBA, it's just reaffirming that. And he's just, he's been a lot of fun to watch and has been even a little more than, um, you know, we kind of thought he was going to be coming out of college. And you mentioned his shooting improvement since San Jose. I mean, he's done nothing but completely revamp his form and steadily improve every year and steadily stretch out his range. So, and I don't think he'll ever be a prolific three-point shooter, but being able to knock down a corner three every now and then is going to be massive. And just his athleticism and versatility um, paired with uh, Jaron Jackson is just going to be a great fit as these guys grow and develop together. Um, and then pairing that with the athleticism and playmaking of John Morant, um, you know, the Grizzlies are going to struggle this year, but going forward, they're, they're set up to do some, some really fun and impressive things. Next up, Grant Williams, taken with the pick directly after Brandon Clark. And Williams has struggled a bit on the offensive end. He's made 36% of his shots, 33% of his free throws. Obviously, small sample size early on, but really the thing with Williams has been basically everything else. At Tennessee, he was really kind of a star offensive player. That's not going to be his role in the NBA. But what has certainly translated from his play at Tennessee to the NBA is just his really high basketball IQ. Despite him being a rookie, he's going to be one of the least mistake-prone players out there pretty much every time he's on the floor. The Celtics have already tried him at small ball five, which is honestly impressive given that he's only 6'6". But he's the kind of player that is always in the right place on both ends of the floor. And maybe he doesn't have the kind of stellar athleticism or spectacular offensive game to be a star. But he's certainly not someone where you're going to be worried about him missing rotations or things like that. And ultimately, if you put him out there, he's going to be a solid contributor at whatever position he plays. And that's got to be huge for this Celtics team, especially given how thin their front court is. Yeah, I have some kind of serious concerns about the Celtics front court. Um, I just think they they lost a lot compared to what they had last year. Um, with that said, 
you know, Grant Williams is a really, really, really smart player and um, just sees the floor really well. I think he's highly, highly skilled, but I, he just looks tiny out there. And when going up against teams like Philadelphia, he just he can barely hold his own out there. Um, he looks I and mean, he just looks smaller than he did in college, obviously. I and mean, he's not he's just playing amongst giants now. And, you know, teams that have succeeded with playing guys his size at a small ball five, um, you know, those guys have been, you know, great athletes or elite defenders. And Williams really isn't elite at anything. He does a bunch of stuff, you know, really well. Um, But I I have concerns about him going forward as that small ball five with his lack of size and athleticism. So if they can pair him with another front court guy that can be a little more productive um i think that's his best option going forward but you know as an individual basketball player i I think he has a lot to uh a lot to be desired let's move on to the player who the celtics effectively traded for grant williams and some other pieces in matisse thibel he has already become a hipster nba favorite just because of his incredible defensive prowess he was just destroying worlds on the defensive end in the preseason which on the one hand sure it's preseason on the other hand he's playing against mostly nba caliber talent and made them look foolish honestly and so far this year for philadelphia he's been less than a zero on offense he's shooting 12.5 percent from the floor at the moment and really for Tybal, the only thing that matters is can he shoot well enough to stay on the floor because honestly if he can make 35 percent of his threes he's going to be an all defensive mainstay for maybe the next decade or so so for the the team like the 76ers that really lacked really any outside shooting the Tybal picked kind of confused me um and i he's obviously an incredible defender um his timing on blocks and quick hands on steals are already some of the best in the league um and he's great at positioning and if he gets some minutes it wouldn't shock me if he made an all-defensive team as a rookie but offensively he is just so bad at shooting and he can score and finish at the rim when he's cutting every now and then um but in college his shooting number numbers got worse every season and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon so hopefully he can figure out how to just knock down an open three you know once or twice a game um but as of now it's it's going to be a real struggle um for him to make a consistent impact if if they just can't put him on the floor because he can't do anything on offense moving on to cam reddish who has really struggled on both ends to start the season 20 percent from the floor and has just looked lost trying to defend anyone which isn't exactly that out of place on this atlanta team but the thing with reddish is i think that he is really going to be the determining factor for the ceiling of this atlanta team because they've already got two stars in trey young and john collins and if you don't believe that john collins is a star i suggest you watch him play basketball (laughs) but if we're talking about the ceiling for this atlanta team they're going to need a third all-star caliber piece and i just don't think that deandre hunter has that kind of upside i think that cam reddish does have that kind of upside But ultimately, his floor is really, really low, and we've seen that through the first few minutes of him on an NBA court. Yeah, Reddish has uh, probably one of the biggest variances in his floor-to-ceiling among the the lottery picks. And just his struggles from Duke are kind of carrying over, which kind of sucks. You know, he just hasn't been able to figure out how to shoot consistently. But his best chance of earning minutes and making an impact right now is just playing stronger defense um he he is a good defender um he showed that at duke and he has the length and athleticism to be a really good defender um he just hasn't found the the comfort level needed in the nba right now so if if he can become more comfortable and confident in in himself um on that end of the floor the pairing of him and hunter uh with a Trey Young as the um, playmaker, um, I, I think it could be 
could it could turn into a really nice team. Speaking of confidence, I don't think there has been a more confident rookie through their first three games than Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who, despite shooting 17% from the floor, has been looking to put the ball up pretty consistently. He's also done a lot of playmaking for New Orleans. They've put the ball in his hands a lot early, and that looked amazing in summer league that looked amazing in preseason that has not looked amazing through the first three games i think the reality of alexander walker is going to be somewhere between the two poles of his early nba play versus preseason slash summer league play i think he's someone who can really be an effective secondary ball handler already who's a solid offensive piece with decent defensive upside I don't think he's going to finish the season shooting 17.4%. I also don't think he's going to finish the season as one of the five best rookies in the league, which is kind of what it looked like was going to happen at least through the first few summer league games. I love this kid. Um, he, and he's out there playing like he's still at Virginia Tech. The The, the shooting struggles are evident, um, and I think a lot of that is just due to him going up against you know NBA-level defenders instead of just rookies trying to make a roster and that that'll the shooting will come and the shots will fall he was a really good shooter his entire career in college so I'm, I'm not too worried about that um it'd be nice if they started falling sooner rather than later but i think his most impressive skill set is his playmaking ability um he he has the passing vision and you know scoring ability that few on that team really do jj reddick's really the only reliable shooter on that team um and they're really banking on alexander walker kind of developing into a reliable shooter so i'm not too worried about him really losing any playing time or anything anytime soon um because eventually his shot will start to fall and just his ability to create off the dribble for his teammates is really impressive Next up, Eric Pascal, and we are recording this podcast while the Golden State Warriors-Oklahoma City Thunder game on Sunday afternoon is going on. At the current moment, the Thunder are up 70-37, to which is honestly impressive for the Warriors that they've been that bad against this Thunder team that seems like they're going to be pretty close to the bottom of the Western Conference standings, but... Pascal has played nine minutes so far in that game, made two of his three shots. He played 31 minutes on opening night. And ultimately, I think Pascal is going to get a lot of wing minutes for this Warriors team. I think he's going to be, if not the first forward off the bench, then pretty close to that. And really, that's just because I think he hurts you less than the other options that the Warriors are going to put out there. He's coming into the NBA as an older rookie, and he's got an NBA body already, and he's at least passable on the defensive end in comparison to the Warriors' other options there. But, man, this team looked thin going into the season. They look even thinner now, and that makes me think that Pascal's going to get a lot of minutes. And he's a solid player who can contribute in a lot of ways, but really it just feels like he's mostly getting these minutes because he's less damaging than the players behind him. My comp for him in the, in the draft was a homeless Draymond green. So I wasn't surprised when the Warriors took him and he's just one of those undersized forwards that does a bunch of stuff, you know, pretty well, but nothing elite. Um, you know, I want to put an emphasis on the homeless part of the comparison there. I don't think he's going to be Draymond Green or as good as Draymond Green or, you know, and will reach that level um, because he doesn't have that tenacity or that mindset of being the best defender in the world. Um, but he kind of has that, that frame of filling in that role. And I think that's kind of what the Warriors want to eventually develop him into is just a solid all-around forward wing um and yeah you you touched on it they've been awful especially defensively and if he can just be you know a zero instead of a complete negative he'll continue to get more of those minutes let's move on to some other notable rookies who have gotten some playing time but don't appear to be as clear-cut rotation players as some of the guys ahead of them starting with admiral schofield he's playing on a terrible wizards team and Granted, it's been three games, but advanced numbers look pretty good through three games. Obviously, there's 
a sample size issue there, but really with Schofield, he's been okay on offense. He's only hit a quarter of his three-pointers, 40% from the floor, but really on that end, it's more just about not screwing up. On the defensive end, he's been mediocre. He hasn't been missing rotations as much as some of the other players on that Wizards squad. Ultimately, it's kind of hard to evaluate him just given the context around him, but he looks like someone who could be a solid 7th or 8th man, contribute in a bunch of different ways, and you're certainly going to get playing time down there in Washington. In the draft, I was a lot lower on Schofield than most was. I just really don't trust his shooting at all, um, I and I don't think he's really that skilled of a basketball player. Um, he is a great athlete, though, and he works his butt off every time he's on the court. And just the pairing of both those things will keep him around in the NBA for a while because there are always going to be bad teams in the NBA. So him being on a roster, um, you know, and having a a, a decent NBA career wouldn't surprise me, but I don't think he's ever going to be a real contributor um, on an actual contender. So his numbers with the Wizards this year might look decent but I, I think a lot of that will be just because he's on a bad team and has the opportunity to kind of do whatever he wants in inflated minutes moving on to carson edwards he has only made 25 percent of his shots so far this year 22.2 percent from three-point range i don't take any stock in those numbers at all just because carson hit eight three-pointers in a quarter in preseason. And I'm not trying to say that that has affected my long-term evaluation of him, but really what I mean by that is just that his slow start in the first couple of games is not surprising at all because he's such a feast or famine player on offense. And by the time you listen to this podcast, it's entirely possible that in his next game, Edwards will have gone off for 25 points on seven for seven, three-point shooting, and all of this will sound stupid. Yes, I the... I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that the majority of NBA fans watch very little to zero college basketball um, besides March Madness. So all that they would have seen um, would have been Edwards going off in his last couple games in the tournament and then hitting eight threes and a quarter in preseason and automatically thinking that he was the steal of the draft. And he's not. I mean, he's a very streaky scorer. He always has been. He likely always will be. Um, He'll have a handful of games where, you know, he'll drop 25 points in 15 minutes, uh, but then he'll follow that up with a couple weeks of four points a game on 20% shooting. So, I mean, for the Celtics as a spark plug off the bench, um, I I think he's a really nice player um, in that regard. But on the defensive end, he'll be a complete negative, and I don't think that they can really – rely on him being a consistent scorer at all um but you know they'll kind of be able to figure out pretty quickly what type of game he'll have by how he shoots the first couple minutes he's on the floor next up Jarrett culver who is surprisingly far down this list given that he was drafted sixth overall and we've talked about pretty much everyone that was drafted in that range already he's played mostly garbage time minutes so far in minnesota and hasn't looked all that good but I think he is in line to get significantly more minutes down the stretch of the season because I am hoping that Andrew Riggins is going to have a reduced role as the season goes on and the prime player in line for the minutes that Wiggins would be shedding would be Jared Culver. I, I think the ultimate goal um, is for the Timberwolves to kind of develop Culver into more of a point guard role um, in the in the preseason that's kind of where he spent most of his minutes and where he looked the most comfortable um so far in his limited minutes he's looked really uncomfortable off the ball um his shooting struggles or kind of inability to create his own shot have carried over from, from texas tech um you know he's still he needs to speed up the release on his shooting form he still dips the ball way too low but um he's looked the most comfortable when he's had the ball in his hand and kind of able been allowed to create the offense um and create for his teammates so i think that'll be the ultimate goal i'm kind of hoping because shabazz napier is a fine player but i'm not sold on him and jeff teague as the top two point guards um but 
defensively he looks good so i think it's the biggest thing is him just getting more comfortable with um the the increased pace of the nba increased size and skill so i don't think timberwolves fans should be too worried about culver's limited exposure here in the first couple games um because i I think later in the season he'll have a much much inflated role we talked earlier about how surprising it was even in real time that brandon clark fell as far as he did in the draft And on the opposite end, obviously, Cam Johnson is the number one pick in this department. But I feel like the pick that I was the second most shocked by in terms of how early they took the guy was Jordan Poole at number 28 to the Golden State Warriors. And let's just say that the early returns on that pick have not exactly been fantastic. I cannot remember having ever seen a more hopelessly lost defensive player than Jordan Poole and I am genuinely worried for Draymond Green's mental health at the moment. So this was hands down the worst pick of the draft. Um, I thought it then. I think it now. I will likely think it five years from now. Um, I just didn't understand it at all. I didn't even have him in my my draft guide because I didn't think there was any chance that he was going to get drafted. Um, I'm a pretty big Michigan fan, so I saw a lot of you know, really undisciplined basketball from Poole. Um, In college, he was an average scorer, streaky shooter, um, horrible defender, Um, just the complete opposite of what you think of when you think of, you know, a Warriors type player. Um, He's undisciplined. He doesn't make rotations. He doesn't have a high work rate. He's an inconsistent scorer. So I, I didn't get this pick at all. And he's looked awful. these first couple games um you know just hopefully i end up being wrong because i i don't generally like to root against guys and root for failure but and he's been he, he needs to really turn it around if he wants to spend any extended period of time in the nba before we wrap up i just wanted to talk about a couple of big men who have not played major minutes one of them has not played at all so far this year but These are two guys who I think could play a bigger role in their team's rotation later on in the season. So I wanted to cover them quickly before we wrapped up. First is Jackson Hayes. I'm a little bit surprised that we haven't seen him play yet in New Orleans, given how deep Alvin Gentry has been going into his rotations. And given that Zion Williamson is out, you would think that would have freed up more time in the front court. But Hayes hasn't played yet. I think that maybe I'm just a little bit too excited for him now, given his ridiculous dunk in preseason that destroyed the internet. But ultimately, Hayes was always a bit more of a project big man, and the sort of feel-good stories for him out of Summer League and, to a lesser extent, preseason, don't necessarily indicate how he's going to play or how much he's going to play so far this year. I just hope that given how large his rotations have been, that Alvin Gentry at least tries to work Hayes in a little bit before the end of the season. Yeah, so when we were talking about Zion, we kind of touched on how, you know, there were some outside playoff hopes for the Pelicans. And, you know, I I think they're a team that really wants to win right now. So I would be kind of surprised if Hayes gets any consistent playing time, um, really until they're pretty much eliminate from the playoffs just because I don't think that they'll see um, a very raw rookie as someone who will be able to help them win games. I think he has the ability to be um, a really strong rim protector and rim runner. And I think the pairing of him and Zion um, will eventually be a lot of fun to watch and could be really effective, especially on defense. But in the short term, I would be pretty surprised if he gets any consistent playing time and, Right now, I mean, Nicolo Melli's been playing really well in front of him and could block him here early in the season. Uh, Melli's been shooting really well from outside and has, um, you know, done enough on defense by just kind of getting in the way um, and being a decent rebounder. So if Melli keep if Nicolo Melli keeps shooting um, like he has been from outside, it it could make Hayes' ability to to break into um, the rotation that much harder. And last up, Gogo Bataze, really quickly. He has played a grand total of four minutes so far this year. But 
the Pacers have had a rough start, and if that rough start continues, they may find themselves on the outside of the playoff picture looking in sooner rather than later. If that happens, I think that this team is very likely to try and trade one of Miles Turner or DeMontis Sabonis. And even if they don't try and trade either one of those guys, if the Pacers end up falling out of the playoff picture, I think it would make sense to incorporate Batadze more into their rotation than they have so far. He's someone who has the upside of being a three-point shooting big man who can protect the rim, which on the one hand is less valuable to the Pacers because they kind of already have someone like that in Miles Turner. But on the other hand, it's really hard to have too many of those guys in the modern NBA. Yeah, I like Gogo's game a lot. Um, I thought it was an interesting fit with Indiana and just kind of assumed that they would be moving Sabonis and, and or Turner. Um because of it, but their offense has looked awful um, right now. It, it It's a carryover of what we saw from them in the playoffs without Oladipo last year, and until he comes back, I don't see any reason why it would vastly improve other than them trading Turner or Sabonis for um, another scoring option, and I, I think that's kind of really the only way he's going to get any consistent playing time um, in the near future here. Um, besides garbage time. I, I like his skill set. Um, he's just kind of, he's a little too similar to what Turner is right now. So, and he can't really, you can't really play both of them at the same time. But if they move Turner or, or Sabonis, Goga will, will be able to kind of slide in that into that rotation pretty nicely. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? I think that's all it. Awesome. Well, you can find Tyler on Twitter at tmetcalf11, and you can also find his written work on the hashtag basketball website. You can find my written work on the hashtag basketball website as well, and you can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback at all, especially given the slight change in format to the podcast, please let me know either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.